From Maine Public Radio and mainepublic.org, I'm Carol Bousquet with the news on this day in Maine, Friday, February 17th. This Day in Maine is made possible by listener support and by Eastern Basements, a division of Maine-owned Eastern Mold Remediation, offering basement waterproofing solutions, easternbasements.com. A few dozen protesters rallied in downtown Portland Friday in support of the Black Lives Matter movement and to speak out against a banner reading, It's Okay to Be White, that has been displayed in the city during Black History Month. They carried signs reading, It's not okay to be a white supremacist, and hate has no home here. Three or four people stood on the opposite side of Congress Street with signs reading, Unborn Lives Matter, and shouting, One activist, who goes by Lily, says she joined the rally in response to recent displays of white supremacy in Portland. We're here to outnumber them and to just show that the way of the future is with justice and care and that Black Lives Matter is a movement of peace and hope. Friday's rally comes weeks after Portland City Councilor Victoria Pelletier described the threats and hate mail that she received after she made a social media post condemning the It's Okay to Be White sign, which hung in Congress Square Park on the first day of Black History Month. Maine Medical Center and a union representing its nurses have reached an agreement on paid leave. Patty White reports. Maine Medical Center announced Friday that it amended its collective bargaining agreement with nurses to include a variety of paid leaves that weren't addressed during contract negotiations. The amendment includes paid parental, bereavement, jury duty, witness, and military leaves. The benefits will be retroactive to last December. That's when nurses alleged that the hospital illegally eliminated those benefits as retaliation for forming a union. At the time, hospital officials said the nurses' union had failed to offer proposals for paid leave during contract talks. In a statement Friday, Maine Med's chief nursing officer, Devin Carr, said addressing contract concerns is critically important as the hospital administers its first contract with the union, which was finalized last September after more than a year of negotiations. For Maine Public Radio News, I'm Patty White. Thousands of asylum seekers have arrived in Maine in recent years, and to navigate the complex legal system, they seek out legal representation. But there aren't enough immigration attorneys in Maine to keep up with the demand. Several advocacy groups are testing new approaches to stretch limited legal resources. But some asylum seekers say they're still facing the prospect of defending themselves in immigration court without an attorney, which means that they are far more likely to face deportation. Ari Snyder reports. Sunday afternoon services have just concluded at Heaven First Church in Portland. And a man named Jeremias is sitting on a couch outside the main hall as dozens of fellow parishioners, mostly from Angola and DR Congo, mingle before heading home. Jeremias, who is from Angola, says he and his young daughter arrived at the southern U.S. border last year after traveling overland from Brazil. His wife began the journey with them, but Jeremias says she died while traversing a roadless stretch of jungle between Colombia and Panama on foot. Speaking in Portuguese, Jeremias says the group they were traveling with kept moving, 
and he wasn't able to bury her. Now, to secure permanent status in the U.S. for himself and his daughter, Jeremias will have to defend his asylum claim in immigration court. He says he's called three or four attorneys to get help, but has been told that their schedules are full. Others in this congregation are facing similar challenges. Some have lived here for years but can't afford a private attorney. And one more recent arrival says he doesn't even know how to begin the process of seeking asylum. They're among an estimated 8 to 10,000 asylum seekers in Maine with ongoing immigration cases, says Anna Welch, director of the Refugee and Human Rights Clinic at the University of Maine School of Law. There just simply aren't enough attorneys to fill, um, fill the need or the demand here in Maine. And unlike criminal court, Welch says the immigration court system does not provide free representation to those who can't afford it. If they can't get help from a legal aid organization, they must either pay a private attorney to take their case, which can cost thousands of dollars, or represent themselves, often with dire consequences. Welch says the numbers vary year by year, but according to recent data, asylum seekers without representation are 65% more likely to face deportation. And where these are essentially death penalty cases, right, many asylum seekers face persecution, torture, or death should they be returned to their home countries, the stakes couldn't be higher. Several immigration advocacy groups are launching new programs designed to stretch limited legal resources. One of those programs is the Asylum Application Resource Center at the Portland Public Library, run by the local nonprofit Hope Acts, two days a week. You see uh, how many people you are applying for, including yourself. Today, a volunteer named Mathieu is helping an Angolan family understand the forms they need to submit to begin the asylum process. The Resource Center does not offer legal advice. It does provide interpreters, cover the cost of passport photos and postage, and, with the help of the library, offers access to free printing and laptops. Mathieu, who is from Burundi, filed his own asylum application with help from Hope Acts last year. He says even the cost of postage can be a barrier, because under the law, asylum seekers aren't allowed to work until months after they file their cases. We are totally broke, he says in French. We have nothing. Hope Act's director Martha Stein says this program, which began last year, helps 20 to 30 people each week and often has to turn away just as many because spots fill up so quickly. You know, we're, we kind of call this a little bit of a Band-Aid um, because putting an application in is just one step in a very, very long process. But Jennifer Bailey, an attorney with the Immigrant Legal Advocacy Project, or ILAP, says it's an important step because that application lays the legal foundation for an asylum claim based on U.S. and international law. It requires very specific proof that you have been harmed in the past or you fear future harm. It's a well-founded fear based on certain protected grounds. ILAP is Maine's only statewide nonprofit specializing in immigration legal services, and Bailey says it recently launched its own program to expand capacity by helping certain asylum seekers submit their applications under the guidance of an immigration attorney without taking them on as full clients. But Bailey says the fundamental challenge facing asylum seekers in Maine is not just a shortage of attorneys. It's that the complicated immigration court system itself is stacked against unrepresented people. And so that's where it all falls apart, because people can't navigate a complex legal system where they have to write briefs, make arguments, call witnesses, 
things like that on their own in a language that's not their own. But that's exactly what people like Jeremias, the father from Angola who traversed South and Central America to reach the U.S., are trying to do. His case is scheduled for a preliminary hearing in early April, and Jeremias says he's still holding out hope that he will find a lawyer who can help him. For Maine Public Radio News, I'm Ari Snyder. It's now time for Maine's Political Pulse, our weekly analysis of politics and government. Welcome to Maine's Political Pulse. I'm Maine Public's chief political correspondent, Steve Missler, alongside State House reporter Kevin Miller. Well, Democratic Governor Janet Mills delivered her budget address this week, and it was sweeping, thorough, and long, clocking in at just over an hour. We're not going to get into the details because, frankly, the budget has been out for more than a month. It's expected to change, and you can watch the governor's speech at mainpublic.org. But, Kevin, I was struck by some big issues that the governor did not bring up on Tuesday. Yeah, so three omissions that jumped out were paid family and medical leave, the potential for cutting taxes as part of the budget negotiations, and anything to do with the Wabanaki tribes in Maine. Mills didn't touch any of those issues at all in her speech. Yeah, and technically this is a budget address, and some of the topics you just mentioned would be more likely discussed in a state-of-the-state address. But then again, the governor did make some non-budget announcements including reforms at the state's Child Protection Agency, an acceleration of renewable energy development, expansion of district court judgeships, and opioid crisis initiatives. So for that reason, the omission of these three very big issues was pretty noticeable. Let's start with paid family leave, which, as we discussed last week, could be one of the leading issues this legislative session. So uh, progressive groups are pushing hard for a paid family and medical leave law here in Maine. You can already take up to 12 weeks off uh, under federal law to take care of a family member or, or yourself if you're, if you're ill. But the, your employer is not obligated to pay you for that time. But what we're expecting to see here this session is a paid leave program financed through a payroll tax. But here's the hitch, and this might be why uh, Governor Mills didn't bring it up. Business groups so far aren't on board. And Governor Mills, while she supports paid leave, she says that any plan has to take into account the perspective of the business community, especially small businesses. So she might be keeping her powder dry at this point, at least publicly. And as we talked about last week, uh, hanging over all this debate is pretty much a guarantee that if a paid family medical leave law doesn't come out of the legislature this year, those progressive groups are poised to to send it to voters via a ballot initiative. Right, and that ballot initiative may end up being more worker-friendly, if you will, than, say, something that comes out of the legislature, which might be more of a compromise between the progressive advocacy groups and business organizations. Yeah, that's right. All right, then there's uh, tax cuts, which we already know is a Republican priority in the budget, although, to be clear, the GOP has not presented a tax cut plan yet And that plan is going to be a starting point for negotiations. Otherwise, they'd be debating rhetoric, which isn't helpful. What did you make of the governor not even mentioning tax cuts in her speech? I mean, she could have dismissed the idea right out of the gate. She could have opened the door. But Governor Mills didn't do either of those things. And the question is, what message was she sending with that omission? Was she signaling to Republicans that she won't support a tax cut, so don't even try? That's, That's one potential interpretation. But I think one thing that's important to remember here is that unlike her predecessor, uh, Republican Governor Paula Page, Mills not only served in in the legislature, but she served on the Appropriations Committee that actually writes the state budget. 
she knows the process, and therefore she knows that most of these negotiations will happen in that committee or between Democratic and Republican leaders. That's not to say that her administration won't have an influence. They, they certainly will. But Governor LePage couldn't even get some of his tax code changes through a Republican-controlled legislature. So by design here in Maine, governors only have so much influence when it comes to writing the state budget. Right. And I'm sensing a common denominator here in these omissions that we're cataloging. It seems to be that there are very sensitive negotiations yet to take place. And so talking about them in public maybe provokes some people, including us, to draw some inferences from that those remarks. And so maybe just avoiding them altogether was the uh, was by design. I don't know. Right. And I think that we've seen uh, from Governor Mills so far during her four years um, that she is not one that likes to negotiate in public or through the press. She does. Uh, they all do on occasion, but much less so than, say, Governor LePage, who was very clear in his positions on issues and made that very clear when he differed with the legislature. He sure did. Um, <laughs> finally, Mills made no mention of the simmering debate over the expansion of rights for Wabanaki tribes. What I found interesting about this is that the governor didn't even mention tribal matters at all during her State of the State speech last year, but she ended up backing two bills that directly affected the tribes one giving them exclusive rights to mobile sports betting, and another giving the Passamaquoddy tribe more control over drinking water supplies. She also used her support of those proposals as leverage in blocking a more sweeping sovereignty bill. I think this seems like a policy area where Governor Mills tends to keep her cards close to her vest, like, like we were just saying. Look, we all know, uh, because she's been crystal clear on this point, that she didn't support last year's sweeping bill to overhaul that 1980 agreement that tribal leaders say has really harmed their community and is denying the tribes the right to self-government that pretty much every other uh, federally recognized tribes around the country have. But she's told us and other reporters that she's open to discussions about specific issues uh, so this would be more of a piecemeal approach. And from what we're seeing and hearing here at the Statehouse, those conversations between tribal leaders and the administration are happening. And as we've also talked about before, the Wabanaki leaders are working hard to enlist more Republican support this year. And that technically could allow them to get around a veto from Mills if there is a bill that actually makes it through the legislature. I mean, that's a lot of speculation at this point, but it, it does seem like the governor is is She's making clear she's open to these conversations, but at the same time, the Wapanaki tribes are, are looking to build those, those bridges with Republicans as well. Yeah, that is interesting because, you know, that's, I mean, I, I do question whether or not the Wabanaki Alliance will be able to build a critical mass of GOP support on this issue. But the fact that they're even trying shows that they're look, already looking for other avenues here if they can't get what they want via the governor's office, because at the end of the day, her veto pen is pretty powerful, and that's what's standing in their way of uh, some of the issues that they really care about. Right. And I think it's one uh, also important to note that the Wabanaki uh, leaders have not come out and said what they plan to push for this legislative session. And House Speaker Rachel Talbot Ross and legislative leaders have said that it is entirely up to those tribal leaders to decide what they want to pursue this year. All right. Before we move off paid family leave, or maybe we'll circle back to paid family leave, it's worth noting that advocates for the ballot initiative have plenty of cash to advance their cause if the legislative effort fails. We did a little poking around some campaign finance reports and found that some national groups backed by progressive mega donors are already bankrolling the effort. The main group leading the ballot campaign has already brought in 
$1.2 million. One of those donor organizations is uh, 1630 Fund, which is often described as a dark money group on the left because they don't have to disclose their donors. It is known from past reporting that one of those donors is George Soros, who Republicans love to paint as you know the puppet master behind uh, the Democratic agenda. And more generally, it does seem like there are some other well-heeled uh, progressive donors that are supporting this campaign. Okay, that's Kevin Miller, and that's Maine's Political Pulse for this week. For Maine Public Radio News, I'm Steve Missler. And that's today's Maine News. For more stories, visit mainepublic.org and join us tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock for Weekend Edition Saturday. I'm Carol Bousquet. Thanks for listening.